Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On Commons People this week, another Tory rebellion brews. Millions of leaseholders are living in fear because they have no idea how safe their buildings are. And they're also facing staggering bills which they cannot afford. A nightmare fortnight for Keir Starmer. Because he wanted to stay in the European Medicines Agency, Mr Speaker, and said so four times from that dispatch box. Keir Starmer. Nonsense. Don't let the truth get in the way of a pre-prepared gag and the pressure mounts on Boris Johnson over lockdown. And actually, I think most members of the public understand life comes with risk and you have to manage it sensibly um, in order to make the most of it. And I... Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi, Arj. Hi, Paul. Rachel Wearmouse here. Hi, Arj. Hi, Rachel. And we're joined by the Conservative MP for Stevenage, Stephen McPartland. Hello, Arj. Hi, Stephen. Well, Stephen, we've got you on the podcast because you're leading a big potential rebellion of Tory MPs who are demanding help for flat owners caught up in the cladding scandal. More than 30 Tories are backing an amendment which you're leading on, Stephen, to the Fire Safety Bill, which would bar freeholders passing the costs of removing dangerous flammable cladding onto leaseholders. It comes three and a half years after the Grenfell Tower disaster, which highlighted the deadly risks of flammable cladding. And it's left many flat owners in unsafe, unsellable properties and facing massive costs through no fault of their own. During a Labour opposition debate on Monday, Housing Minister Chris Pincher promised to come up with a plan. Let's hear him. We will not let up, Mr Speaker. This work will be going on long after this opposition day is over, long after the leader of the opposition has issued his tweet. We won't even let the pandemic, which is affecting our country and the world, slow us down. We will work to restore the inalienable right for everyone in this country to live somewhere which is decent, which is secure, and above all, which is safe, a place that they can rightly and proudly call home. Uh, Stephen, uh, the Housing Minister tried to reassure you and colleagues on Monday. Are you happy with where you are on this at the moment? Oh, most definitely not. The Housing Minister asked us to withdraw our amendment because they're um, frightened. Um, We now have 38 Conservative colleagues signed up to the amendment, so we're making huge progress and we're going to continue doing that. A lot of the problem, Marge, is a lot of it comes down to actually the department's incompetence, the Secretary of State and the ministers in particular. Back in um, January 2020, they changed a consolidated, issued a consolidated advice note, which changed the um, whole situation. They really moved the goalposts. So up until then, um, only buildings that were over 18 metres, so say six storeys, were affected. And there was estimated about 17, 1800 of those across the country. When they changed the issued the consolidated advice note, what happened was um, they said that any building of any height, and that means that well over a hundred thousand buildings are now affected, and the estimated over four million flats. 
But when the government say that, you know, these ministers say they're on top of it, as we know, it's been three and a half years. But on top of that, they can't answer the single question of, um, you know, well, how many people are affected, how many flats are affected and where are they? Paul, what, Stephen's touched on it there, but how has this gone on for so long since Grenfell, which was such a kind of horrible moment that the whole nation, nation woke up to? Yeah, I mean, what's really curious is that on the one hand, I mean, the government's always been on the back foot on Grenfell ever since Theresa May's dreadful response to it straight away. But at least they've, over time, begun to try and fix it. And, you know, they've offered 1.6 billion quid to help leaseholders. Um, and that sounds like a lot. You know, it's a lot of money in, in, in most people's terms. But as, as Steve just said, you know, um, if you change the goalpost, then you're going to need to provide even more funding. Um, I don't know if you have estimated, Steve, what, what kind of funding you're looking at. Have you, have you given them sort of rough ballpark of how much cash extra you need? I mean, talking to different groups, um, the estimates are anywhere between 20 to 40 billion, but it could go much higher because, I mean, the difficulty is if you're in a second story flat with a wooden balcony, you're being treated exactly the same as if you're at the top of a high rise block of flats with cladding. Right. Yeah, that, that that's the problem, isn't it? And I think the real difficulty here is that... Uh, oh, it's, it's a question of competence, ultimately. It's not even a question of ideology. It's not about whether it's right or wrong. Um, the only place in which the ideology, I think, might come in is the ideology in, on behalf of the Treasury, where they're saying, actually, you've had enough, no more. And, and, and that actually might come down to Rishi Sunak, you know, faced with everything else in the pandemic. One, one more big bill, can he face it? You know, um, the argument is, of course, in the pandemic, you know, you're borrowing lots of money. Um, and, you know, a few billion more, although it sounds enormous in terms of the consequences for a lot of these leaseholders would be a massive help. Um, but in comparison to the, the overall many billions on the pandemic, um, you know, you might say it's worthwhile. I think the real difficulty is and, uh, and I hate to put my finger on this, but it's Chris Pincher himself, unfortunately, doesn't do himself any favours. I just think the way he approaches um, uh, other backbenchers, not just opposition backbenchers, but backbenchers in his own party, um, is has always been strange. Ever since he was a deputy chief whip um, you know, during the Brexit wars, he didn't cover himself in glory. And I think Steve might correct me on this, but um, I think that might be part of the problem. I think it's um, very difficult. I never focus on individuals. I only ever focus on the policy. But, you know, there is a lot of incompetence in this area. And it is down to, you know, um, the people in charge of that department. I mean, I actually said in Parliament, I was very clear about it, the Secretary of State needed to get out of his ivory tower, stop talking and start helping people. I mean, you know, the Minister for Housing, he just doesn't seem to have a grip of this issue. It's almost like he doesn't actually fully understand it. I mean, I accused him on Monday of incompetence in the chamber as well. And that's where we are. I think one of the things that people are missing is that, you know, a lot of people are trapped in a position where they cannot sell these properties and I think when we hear about leaseholders loans I made it clear at PMQs on Wednesday that I would not support loans to leaseholders if you actually look at what a building society or bank does they say that they can only lend um, you a mortgage if the property is structurally sound or safe and for many of these people because the goalposts have been moved and the tests haven't been taken we don't know if they're structurally sound or safe so you even if somebody wants to buy your flat the they can't get a mortgage to do it then on top of that um, as you're an individual sitting in that flat you might have um, there's two examples so one is you may own 
10% of the property and a housing association, the other 90% because you've done shared ownership. But under the current rules, you're responsible for 100% of the costs. So, you know, effectively, um, in terms of negative equity, you are so far be, um, below the waterline, it's unbelievable. And then if, you're, you, if you've not done it through um, one of the affordable housing providers, you've just bought your flat in a traditional way. Well, then those people, um, they have to pass an affordability test with the building society and the bank. And if you have a 90% mortgage, say, on your first flat, um, with these potential loans to leaseholders, say, because the maths is easy, you've got a 200 grand flat, 90% mortgage is 180,000 pound. And then you get hit with a 75,000 pound leaseholder loan on top. Well, then again, you're in negative equity of over 60,000 pound. And so if the housing market in one sense at this level is just completely stopped and that will feed through um, in months to come. So I actually don't think the treasury are saying no to the announcements. Um, and funding, I think they're basically saying quite rightly, well, how big's the problem? How much do you want and how can you fix it? And, you know, that's exactly what I'm saying and what leaseholders are saying. And the department can't answer. And, and is it difficult for the department to estimate that? I mean, what would they actually have to do? Well, I mean, there's a number of things they could do. I mean, obviously, they could um, change the guidance and, you know, move the goalpost so it wasn't affecting every building of every um, single type of structure and every height. So six stories and above you'd be looking at? Um, well, they could do that. They could do four stories. There's a variety of things they could do. But even when they, their definition of cladding actually includes wood. So, you know, um, under a bank and building society, the government guidance is making it very difficult because under the law, basically, the guidance it actually says if you've got a wooden balcony, well, technically you've got former cladding on your property. So the you could look at a more risk-based assessment and ask the management companies and freeholders to then be looking at each individual block and see what's going on. Um, when we had Grenfell, um, I um, met with my local authorities and my fire service um, the following days. And we, we have some tower blocks in Stevenage and we went and looked at them and, you know, they did tests very quickly to make sure um, what was going to be happening and what the challenges were. And um, Hertfordshire actually had a very large platform, it's just 18 stories or something. And we went and bought a bigger one, which I, I think is 20 odd stories where it actually happens to be based in my constituency and it was avail it's available if anything happens. So there are things you could actually do locally as well as nationally but they've had three and a half years and they still don't know where the blocks of flats are because they keep changing the goalposts so they go identify what the guidance is what the risks are and then work with local organizations and leaseholders themselves to um, move forward and develop a solution and they're just not doing that they're literally they just don't have a grip of it and there is you know unfortunately i don't want to say it over and over again but it is incompetence yeah, um, Rachel, th this issue's um, come back up this week in part because Labour had an opposition day debate on it. Um, apart from the, the seeming sort of natural justice behind what Stephen's calling for, politically, what, what are the reasons for Labour pushing on this? I think there's just um, the, the human cost of it. You know, you've got, I think when Keir Starmer brought it up at PMQs, he mentioned a sort of 27-year-old woman who'd gone bankrupt you know who'd bought one of these flats and was just left to take the cost and take the cost and take the cost and those are people that Labour will want to vote for them um, in terms of just how successful 
Labour would hope to be with that campaign, as well as sort of MPs like Conservative MPs like Stephen backing it. There's also the Daily Mail campaigning on this issue. Um, so it's kind of like a big coalition. It's kind of like a win-win situation for them. You know, they put a lot of heat on the government over this. Um, and other political reasons, I guess, um, it goes to sort of what how, what how the government's going to handle other issues around cladding. You know, we know that there, there, there are other buildings that have got unsafe cladding. Some of them may be care homes, some of them may be schools. So it's kind of just keeping up that pressure on the government for Labour, I think. And Steve, did you say you've got 38 now? Signed yeah, up to have, yeah, we have 38 sets of MPs who are backing the amendments, and obviously we've got a lot more support. And we're working with um, UK Clad and Action Group and End Our Cladding Scandal, and they're asking um, you know these holders to email their local members of Parliament. And what, one of the issues that we've actually come across is a lot of MPs don't believe it affects their constituencies. They mm -hmm. think it has to have these high-rise tower blocks of 18, 20 stories. And we're trying to get the message across to them loud and clearly that actually if you've got a two-story block of flats in your constituency, it affects you. Right. And and with that number, I mean, you're in the territory then of defeating the government if Labour come on board. And it's although, you know, you guys weren't in the same lobbies this week, it's quite obvious that Labour surely would be tempted to, to back your amendment. Um, if they do, do you think the government might try and come up with some last minute compromise like they always try and do on the floor of the House? Um, and are you, are you going to roll over if they do or, or are you going to stick to your guns until they give you exactly what you want? Well, I mean, Paul, you know, I've never rolled over in the nearly 11 years <laughs> I've been there. I mean, you, didn't on cra you didn't on tax credits, remember that? No, I think I was the first person to actually beat Osborne, wasn't I, when he was Chancellor? It cost exactly. A billion. So I'm going for more this time. I think re realistically, um, I think there was a lot of irritation amongst the cladding groups and Conservative MPs in particular um, with the Opposition Day motion. We saw it as very opportunistic. It was a bandwagon. We've had leaseholders begging them for seven weeks to sign our amendments and they chose not to. They chose to table their own amendments instead and try to say, oh, this is not good enough. This goes further. If you don't come in a lobby with us, you don't care about leaseholders. So they basically just put everybody's back up and wound everybody up. And as a result of it, it was like, well, um, actually, well, you know, go on, let, let's hear what you've got to say. And their big idea was let's do a task force. That's like, you know, if you actually had any time for leaseholders and spoke to leaseholders, they'd say to you, nobody wants um, a task force with no teeth to discuss it for another three years. What they actually want is to be told very simply in law that leaseholders are not responsible for historic fire safety defects. And then secondly, they won't be required to take out leaseholder loans. That's actually what they want. And the stuff Labour put forward on Monday in an opposition day debate, which doesn't change anything anyway, um, it was embarrassing and it was just annoying. I mean, you know, I'm pleased it's um, in. The only positive from it is, you know, more people are talking about it, which is good news for everybody. And it allows us to push the message out and speak to our colleagues. But I think overall, we just feel that we want to be on the side of the leaseholders because this is a serious issue which is going to have long term impact, not only on the individuals, but also the housing market and then the local economies as we try to move towards an economic recovery. Uh, just finally on this topic, Stephen, you, you've described uh, incompetence from the Secretary of State, who's Robert Jenrick here. He's, he's not had the, the, the best time in that job in terms of the coverage over the last year. Do you think he should be in that job? Um, to be honest, Arge, I always deal with the policy. I never deal with the individuals, but you know, you'll know there's a lot of 
communication going on. There's a lot of people wondering why some of the people in the roles are in those particular roles. What are they looking to achieve? When I'm torturing a minister, I always say to him, you know, so what have you done that you're proud of? What have you done to help local people? In the last year you've been a minister, what have you done? That, you know, you can stand up and say, you know, that's the difference I made, that's the achievement I did. And they always get very embarrassed. <laughs> Do you, think he's done a, do you think he's done a great deal for first-time buyers? Because like you say, a lot of people who are affected by this are people who've taken on shared ownership schemes. They're kind of trying to get on the housing ladder. Do you think, do you think Robert Jenrick's done a great deal for them? Um, I, as I said, I don't like to go personal, so I won't. Um, but I think it's very difficult. I think some departments are very good at making announcements but don't follow through. So even in my own constituency, you know, we have a lot of planning applications that go through so on paper you know, thousands of properties are going to be getting built. But in reality, you know, um, you only ever get 60, 70, 80 a year released into the housing market because they um, that's how they, you know, build at that speed and obviously no doubt to keep some of the prices at the level that they want. So I think, you know, there's always a lot of announcements from some departments, but very little follow through. And the departments, um, ministry housings and local governments, one of them. Well, we've been speaking of Labour there, and it's not been a great couple of weeks for Keir Starmer, and he's facing more and more criticism from within his own ranks. The slide started when Labour appeared to ignore scientific advice by calling for teachers to be vaccinated against COVID before all the most vulnerable groups identified by official advisors on the JCVI. And this week, Starmer really had a 24 hours to forget. First, The Guardian revealed an internal Labour strategy presentation which urged the party to wrap itself in the union flag use veterans and dress smartly as part of a rebrand to win back patriotic red wall voters. And then he was forced to apologise after wrongly claiming in PMQs that he'd never backed membership of the European Medicines Agency after Brexit. Let's listen to his exchange with Boris Johnson. Well, all of this, of course, is to allow us to get on with a vaccination programme. And if it had listened to the right honourable gentleman, Mr Speaker, we would still be at the starting blocks because he wanted to stay in the European Medicines Agency, Mr Speaker, and said so four times from that dispatch box. Nonsense. Don't let the truth get in the way of a pre-prepared gag. Mr Speaker, the... the, the, the Prime Minister knows I've never said that uh, from this dispatch box or anywhere else. Paul... But... Starmer kind of had a point in that the medicines agency membership wouldn't have made a difference to the vaccination programme. But generally speaking, he's not had a great couple of weeks, has he? Well, he certainly hasn't this week because um, they've had a lot of uh, flack from their own side, that's for sure. And obviously, as the leader of the Labour Party, you're expecting there's going to be some kind of pushback from the left who are still quite unhappy about him over what he's done to Jeremy Corbyn. That's that You kind of bank that, let's be honest. There's always going to be that. And in some ways, you know, um, he might say that's a good thing and it's given him a bit of definition. I'm not Jeremy Corbyn. I've moved on. That, that's worked up to a point. And, but this week, I mean, I know it's... It, to me, it sounds rather odd that there can even be a row about someone saying that the union flag is a good thing. Um, and I think it just shows you where the Labour Party is right now. It shows you that actually, yeah, there is a row. And that's because the Labour Party has certainly shifted a more soft left position even before Corbyn under Miliband. And Miliband had a real problem struggling with this issue. You know, the, the immigration mugs thing was see, on a mug was seen as sort of glib. Um, and I think the whole problem is that it goes back to 
who does Labour think it really represents? Now, it's clear that its own membership, um, and there's been some polling on this, um, Maria Sobolowska, who, who did that great book with Rob Ford on, uh, on Brexit, um, who, and we had Rob at Brexit land, we, we had Ramon, Rob on the show uh, last year. They did some research and they, in that book, they showed that actually, yeah, the current Labour Party, Labour voters, some of them really don't like talking about the flag or patriotism, you know, um, and, the question is, who's Labour going to win over? Is it going to lose some of those voters? And is it going to gain enough of the voters who don't do like talking about the flag uh, as a consequence? Um, you know, they'll probably lose the Greens, the Lib Dems, that kind of stuff. Um, and the, it, the difficulty is, it's not just what the flag means, because you would have thought it was a very simple case for Keir Starmer, you say, look, we want to reclaim the flag from the extremists. There's nothing extreme about the Union flag or the St George's flag, and we're in Emily Thornberry territory again. You know what? You shouldn't be embarrassed about it. You shouldn't sort of buy into the rhetoric that you have to be in the NF to like the flag. Um, and it, it's just a way of expressing that it, that seems to be Starmer's problem. And he's not engaged with it this week at all. You've noticed that he actually said nothing at all about that, that um, Guardian stuff. Um, and you might say that's the right policy, because actually what he has been doing is the right thing, going to, for example, writing pieces in the Daily Telegraph, being seen with veterans and actually doing rather than saying, I think actually is probably the long term answer to this. You don't really show your patriotism by saying, look, I've got a flag behind me. What you do is actually do things to show you're patriotic. So I, I, let's see on that, whether yeah. there's more of it. Stephen, do you, do you think Starmer's doing a good job of uh, being patriotic rather than appearing patriotic, shall we say? I, I think... I think from the Conservative Party point of view, we think he's doing a good job as Labour leader. <laughs> you used to steal that about Corbyn. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, um, um, I think Corbyn, um, he had he appealed to certain sections of the community who'd not voted for a long time, and he got them to vote again. I think with um, Stormer, he is in a very difficult position because he's actually not announced any policies or done anything so his problems haven't even started yet and you know we're sitting here waiting for the problems to start and he's already got problems so to speak so I think in terms of patriotism yeah I'm with Paul you know it's ridiculous that anybody thinks that um, the Union Jag or you know um, St Andrews in Scotland you know um, Wales um, St George England anything you know any flags wrong I mean you know a, fl a flag is it's on the arm of our soldiers as they go out whether they're helping in the UK or they're helping overseas doing international aid I mean it's ridiculous that there is an argument over it but as Paul says you know that shows where some of those sections of the Labour Party currently are. Yeah, Rachel, what are people saying inside Labour? Uh, we've had left-wing MPs like Ian Lavery on this podcast suggesting he might, Stammer might face a leadership challenge at some point. Is that really likely? Uh, well, I was just gonna, first of all, I was going to say about the, 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 the flag and yeah. sort of the, the strategy behind that is um, it, I think a lot of that will go to seats that he could win, seats that Labour could win in Wales and in, in Scotland, where the only where he's going to get a majority in lots of these constituencies is by being um, the stronger pro-union party. You know, he's not, he's not, there are some SNP seats that he's never going to win in Scotland and, and others that are more swinging towards more Welsh nationalism are, are going to be a struggle for him to win there as well. So I think some of it's about, about him trying to, you know, pitch himself early. You know, I mean, to look at his choices, the shadow cabinet, for example, he's got a, he's got a shadow home secretary who's Welsh, 
and he's got a shadow chancellor who's Scottish, you know, he's, I think he's thinking all the time about um, how to, you know, bring, bring more voters in from, from the nations. And I think a lot of the patriotism stuff goes to the red wall seats that he's lost as well. You know, a lot of ex-forces communities um, are very much proudly British. Um, in terms of what people within the Labour Party are saying, many of them are not happy whatsoever. Um, and I think just as Paul mentioned before, a lot of that goes back to how, how they feel Jeremy Corbyn's been treated. Um, but I think they're kind of, if they're going to, from what I can gather, they're going to see how it pans out until the end of the year. And then he may be in serious trouble, a direct quote from someone I spoke to <laughs> today, maybe in more serious trouble by the end of the year if he hasn't made more headway and hadn't stuck to the 10 pledges that he'd made, which took in a lot of left-wing policy on um, nationalising railways and student fees and things like that. Music to Stephen's ears, I imagine. <laughs> no, not, not, not really. I mean, um, we uh, internally, we've always felt he's only gone another 18 months and then they'll replace him. So we're just basically um, wait, waiting and seeing. And, you know, um, what Rachel's saying is maybe that's going to be six months earlier than we expected. Because, um, you know, they'll spend six months after wanting to replace him, arguing about how to replace him. And it'll be very much those life of blind organisations being the different people's republics and the, or the republic peoples. You know, that goes on a lot inside the Labour Party. And, um, you know, we'll sit back and enjoy that, I imagine. And Steve, do you, do you, who do you think is best, um, most likely to try and replace him? Obviously, it'll have to be a woman next. Would it be Angie Rayner versus someone else? I don't know, because I think within the Labour Party, um, people forget that um, Keir Starmer, in fairness to him, he was only elected in 2015. So, you know, he was leader of the Labour Party within, you know, less than five years of being elected. So, it really, you know, there's nothing to say a 2017, you know, 2019 couldn't come in. I mean, you know, politics is very open. I think, it, I think you know, there'll be an argument over whether it's left or right or a centrist. And I think, you know, what we'll do for... Keir Starmer will be when he starts to announce some policies and then you'll get a feeling of, you know, which way the Labour Party is going to go. I think it really is too early to say. I mean, yeah. you know, I think it's almost like, you know, some on the left field, is, it's gone too far one way. And, you know, if you think of what you think of, you know, the traditional moderate Labour, they think it really hasn't come far enough yet. So I think that battle still to be had. And that's probably the battle that we're going to see over the next 12 months inside Labour. The irony is, on Sunday, you had Jeremy Hunt saying Keir Starmer's the biggest threat to Tories since Tony Blair. Well, I mean, obviously, we'd like to keep him in place for as long as possible. <laughs> uh, maybe that's it, is it? That's the strategy. I guess, I guess it depends who, who they'll be facing as well, because, you know, not all Conservatives are, are happy with Boris Johnson. Well, I mean, I, th I think the Prime Minister will um, certainly be there at the next election if he wants to be. I don't think there'll be any challenge against him, you know, you, in, in terms of, I mean, everybody recognises that mistakes are being made and we'll come on to um, lockdown and COVID in a moment, I'm sure, and we can talk about it then. But, you know, really, realistically, um, you know, the Conservative Party is always interested in providing competence governments and a leader who can win elections. And, you know, at the moment, it's not nice. But if you look at the cladding scandal, it's led by myself and my colleague, Royster Smith in Southampton, Itchen. You know, the Labour Party should have been one in that campaign for the last two, three years. 
And, you know, they, they've not, if you look at a lot of the campaigns, a lot of the things that's changing the fabric of how people live, it's actually conservatives who are technically rebelling. But, you know, it's a space and gap that the Labour Party should have been in already. Uh, Stephen, you've absolute pro there. You've given me the link to the next section. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there was uh, some sad news this week with the death of 100-year-old Captain Sir Tom Moore, who raised £33 million pounds for the NHS by walking laps of his garden. But there were also some rays of hope with an Oxford study confirming the effectiveness of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine after a first dose and crucially finding that it cuts transmission by 67%. The research has prompted several Tory MPs to ramp up calls for Boris Johnson to speed up his plan for lifting lockdown. Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty has confirmed we are now past the peak of this wave of COVID. The PM is, however, exercising caution. Let's hear him. What everybody wants to see is a world in which we can relax uh, the guidelines and the uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions for everybody. So relax all the kind of uh, restrictions for everybody and, and do that by vaccinating, uh, as, as Chris was explaining with the, uh, the chart of the most vulnerable groups, va vaccinating as many of the most vulnerable as, as we can as fast as possible and then taking a view about the interaction between that and the, the prevalence of the, of the disease. At the moment, uh, as, as, as we've discussed several times, the level of infection is still forbiddingly high for us to imagine uh, the relaxation of the, uh, of the current guidelines. Uh, Paul, uh, interesting story in The Telegraph today suggesting Rishi Sunak's pushing for lockdown to be lifted sooner rather than later. Johnson's so far resisting that kind of pressure from within his own party. Do you think he'll carry on? Yeah, I think he pretty will much carry on as he's been doing. He's, he's wedded to this really cautious exit strategy now. I mean, the interesting thing, though, is that he's, he's played it actually much better this year in 2021 than he did last year. Um, so he's consistently been behind the scientists at all these press conferences he's, he's made sure it is caution is the watchword and as a result i think he might have bought himself a bit of space if he does surprise people by doing the old thing that's slightly earlier say for example uh, it's not just schools that are open on march 8th say for example he slightly relaxes the rules on outdoor interaction say you go up instead of one to one you go to one to six or or whatever you know so it, I think it's been quite good politically what he's been doing because actually it's under promising if you see what I mean and then and, and then you could possibly over deliver just as with vaccines you know you push that and it may well be that we've got even more success on that I think Rishi Sunak's interesting because he's obviously trying to stick a, a flag in the ground again as he did last year that he, he really wants to get out quicker than than some people in number 10 I think um and he's got a point, which is that he's basically holding the PM to his own um, strategy, which is as soon as that, you know, those four vulnerable groups are all vaccinated, then as soon as that happens, then why not move very quickly in April or May uh, into, into changing things around um, significantly? And I, again, because he's underplayed it so far, maybe that switch to a sort of a more rapid bounce back um, in what we can all do, that might pay off. Yeah, Stephen, what, what, what do you think? Where, where do you side on this? Uh, Boris and the scientists or Rishi and uh, the COVID recovery group or somewhere in the middle? Um, I always think it's really difficult doing a binary choice. So, um, but unfortunately, politics is full of them. I actually, um, I didn't vote against the first lockdown. I voted against the November one and the um, one we're currently in. 
because I wanted to be, and this goes back to labor again, I wanted to be a voice for the 10 million key workers who are actually um, not being heard. So these are people who've been asked to go out to work since last March and, you know, it's safe for them to go to work. People say schools are closed. My wife's a um, special education needs coordinator. Most of the schools in my constituency have got half the children in because um, they have, you know, more this lockdown than they did in the previous ones. But the reality is we have so many key workers. You know, I have, I have a large hospital. Um, we have lots of stuff going on. Um, you know, if you think about people who are going out there, postmen, supermarket delivery drivers, carers, people who work in the hospital, you know, truck drivers, there's just all those people that when you click on Amazon a little bit later on, will be delivering the parcel for you. And they'll be going from the warehouse to your actual property in the delivery driver, all those people, no one's speaking for them. And so I wanted to stand up and speak up for those people. And I think with lockdown, one of my concerns is in Hertfordshire, we were placed in Stevenage is in Hertfordshire is 1.3 million people. Stevenage is in the north, north of it. I'm a very, very different. Nobody from Stevenage would go to Watford and vice versa. And um, Watford's inside the M25, the hash tube lines is very, very different. And um, Broxbourne's similar. So effectively, um, we have two different COVID hospitals. So we're a COVID hospital hub in our area. And so northern Hertfordshire, Stevenage, southern Bedfordshire, and that'll equate for about 700,000 people. So we were saying that actually lockdown should have been based more on the hospital hubs and the district areas around them rather than artificial county boundaries that went back a thousand years and they're only there because the normans created the county system and that was it so we wanted it to be more relevant and in in Hertfordshire, we literally watched um in the um after november lockdown we watched coronavirus start in broxbourne spread across the south of the county and then slowly spread up the north of the county and eventually we got there and now we're probably a week or so behind where they were but it was a lot slower getting to us and, you know, over half of all my transmissions, according to public health, are in my supermarkets. And there's a wonderful little anecdotal piece of evidence. People get a test. And um, while they're waiting for the results of the test, their next visit is the supermarket because they may have to stock up in case they have to isolate for 10 days. And that happens. So what I was a proponent of is what's actually happening now with the South African variants which is you get into these postcodes, you identify where the transmissions are, you lock down those particular roads and areas and you're trying to stop those transmissions from spreading. And we didn't see that. And I imagine when there's a public inquiry in the future, one of the challenges that will come out and one of the big points will be the government pulled a, pulled a big lever in London and then all these public health organisations in different parts of the country all went and did everything in a completely different way to each other. And as a result, things happened in some areas that didn't happen in other areas. And it spread in one area and not another. And I think, you know, um, my hospital, um, we never had more than 40% of patients with COVID. So in my hospital, we never got to a stage where more than 40% of patients actually had COVID. Now, I'm not saying that my hospital's good or better or anything else. All I'm saying is that if you're a small town surrounded by rural areas with market towns, you're a very different prospect than if you're in a large city. And I think we needed to look at ways of how we could actually go into these areas and lock them down. I'm from Liverpool, as you can tell, and all my family are up there. I've seen my family once since last March. And so I understand the pain people are facing. You know, I've missed half a dozen funerals in the last year because I've not been able to go. But when the army went into Liverpool, they stopped messing about and they took it seriously. And, you know, within a week to 10 days, it was a different environment up there. And you literally saw Liverpool issues drop. And I think people have just got lockdown fatigue. And, you know, just that behaviour of, you know, you go for a test, 
because you might have coronavirus and your next steps the supermarket there's, there's loads to pick out there Stephen but uh, unfortunately we're running out of time so let's move on to the quiz yay thanks Paul <laughs> uh, uh, and well after Chris Whitty was heckled in the street while buying a naked burrito in Westminster this week's is all about political heckles Ooh. Uh, so just shout the answer if you know it and I'll give you a point if it's right uh, question number one, when Margaret Thatcher first appeared in the Commons following Geoffrey Howe's deadly resignation speech, which Labour MP called out, hobble, hobble, quack, quack? Oh, I don't know that. Can't be Dennis Skinner, can it? Yeah, it's Dennis Skinner. Right, OK. <laughs> Point for you, Paul. Uh, next one. It's a bit funny for Dennis Skinner. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a long time ago. <laughs> Uh, in the run-up to the Brexit deadline, Boris Johnson was heckled by a voter for not doing enough to get a deal with the EU and was told to go to Brussels and negotiate instead of being where? Was he running in a park in London? No. Oh, I don't know this one. Um, instead of being in Chequers? I don't know. No, no. Uh, he was in uh, Morley in Leeds. Ah. There's a very famous clip of the voter shouting at him. You're not in Brussels, you're in Morley and Leeds. <laughs> <laughs> um, final one. Uh, Theresa May was infamously handed a P45 by prankster Simon Brodkin at Tory conference in 2017. But according to Brodkin, who told him to do it? Oh, Boris. He said Boris Johnson. Yes, well it. done. Yeah. yeah, well done, Rachel. I remember, oh, I, was right. at, I, remember I was at conference and I had to try and like catch up with the guy to ask him. <laughs> Yeah, taking it, it out of the conference hall. Yeah, he, 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 yeah, he got up on stage and said, "Prime Minister Boris told me to give you this." Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And David Davis did bugger all, if I remember rightly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just re reclined. <laughs> yeah, what, what happened to that SAS training? Eh? I know. <laughs> yeah. so it wasn't it Amber Rudd that actually did more than anyone else, if I remember rightly. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, I think I think I think Amber stepped in, but I yeah. think David was uh, doing his observation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Reconnaissance. Reconnaissance. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't want to break cover. Yeah. Risk assessment. Yeah. <laughs> were, were you there, Stephen? Did you see it live or? I, I saw it live on TV. I wasn't actually at uh, conference that day. Yeah. I was in the hall, I remember, it was just unbelievable. I couldn't believe what was happening. It was just extraordinary. It, yeah. it seemed to take it on TV, it seemed to take about three, four minutes. Yeah. I mean, it's extraordinary. Just imagine if he'd actually had a knife or something. It's amazing to this day that he got that close. Can you imagine if that was an American president? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah indeed. Well, uh, on, on that note, uh, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. And thank you to my guests for joining me. And make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels. And please be sure to leave a review. And get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. Uh, we'll just leave you with Chris Whitty's brilliant response to that heckle from a 15-year-old boy. The odd young lad showing off occasionally happens. I didn't think anything of it, frankly. I was very surprised he was picked up by the media at all as anything of any importance. I'm sure he'll become a model citizen in due course and hopefully more like Captain Tom, who's the kind of person who I think much more exemplifies uh, the, the yeah, spirit yeah, of the UK. Yeah, I mean, he was himself clearly absolutely remarkable, yeah, yeah. but what he was also doing was showing how it is 
that everybody has responded to this. And this has been a, a nationwide, everybody responding. So if it wasn't for that, we would not see those numbers coming down. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.